What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, October 29th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host extraordinaire, Nick Janusa. Nick, happy Halloween, buddy. Ooh! <laughs> happy Halloween, everyone. Big shouts out to my sister who has a birthday after Halloween, the day after. Uh, and that's actually what I'm doing this weekend. So happy birthday, Chess. Wow, I didn't realize that, but my brother-in-law's birthday is the day before Halloween, so we got back-to-back-to-back wow. to back to back things to celebrate. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. We need to have like a, a joint uh, banger at yeah. some point. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, so happy early birthday, Steve. Happy early birthday, Chess. And happy Halloween to everyone else. This Sunday, it is also time for the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, Scotland to start. So I'm pumped. I hope we get some big, big plans out of this one. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let Guterres at him. <laughs> Just send him at everybody like, nope, that's not going to fly here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you as a listener. Before we kick things off, if you haven't already, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help the show get some visibility. If it's something you've already done, do it again. We need the help, and it would be awesome. You can also review on Spotify now, so that's cool too. Don't know if that has the same weight. Yeah, and we all, we actually got a review in from uh, Antonio Guterres on Spotify. He said, I'm going to be in bowl <laughs> in a goddamn China shop this weekend. <laughs> As he's listening to TPT. <laughs> All right, so let's get into our quick hits. So our first quick hit is from the New York Times, and it's Climate Change Poses a Widening Threat to National Security by Christopher Flavel, Julian E. Barnes, Eileen Sullivan, and Jennifer Steinhauer. So Nick and I joke a lot about how it seems like whenever we record on Wednesday, for example, Thursday, there's just like this huge dump of big news that happened. And last week was one of those weeks. So, uh, yeah, last Thursday, the Biden administration released a series of reports that documented the link between climate change and national security. The reports include warnings from the intelligence community about how climate change can put a strain on a nation due to lost revenue from fossil fuels, food shortages, fights over water, etc. The Department of Homeland Security mentioned that ice melting in the Arctic Ocean will increase competition for fish, minerals, and other resources, along with up to 143 million people needing to relocate from South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America by 2050. So we're not just looking at a climate issue here, we're also looking at a climate refugee issue here. Those people will need a place to go if we can't mitigate the damage beforehand. It's also an economic issue, and not just an environmental one. 
as the authors point out that more frequent and more destructive disasters are going to lead to more property damage, lost income and business disruptions and lower real estate values. Yeah. And they added that as of October 8th, there have been 18 weather or climate related disasters this year that have cost over 1 billion each. Yeah. So that's just this year. Like I'm sure last year had also astronomical numbers, but the good news is infrastructure is always improving. So in theory, a storm that's twice as destructive doesn't mean it's going to be twice as expensive. But the bad news is they will be more expensive as that damage adds up. The reports were released before President Biden is set to attend the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, where the goal is for the U.S. to become global leaders on fighting climate change. Unfortunately, we do not have the best record in that department as of late. The White House announced that the reports emphasize Biden's commitment to evidence-based decisions guided by the best available science and data. Just to kind of sum up the reports that were released, global tensions will rise as countries argue over how to quickly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now for that, it's better than arguing over if we should quickly lower greenhouse gas emissions, so positive steps. Um, Another thing that it focused on is that the effects of climate change will be felt most heavily in the developing world. So COP26 needs to also address equity and not just equality. There's an example that really breaks down the difference of those two things that I went over in a grad school class where equality is giving everyone a box so they can look over a fence and see what's on the other side. Equity is giving the person who is five foot two two boxes, giving the person who's five foot six, one box, and the person who's six feet tall that can already see over the fence, they don't need the box. So that's sort of the approach that I think we're going to have to look at this through the lens of. And the final thing, China and India are going to determine how quickly global temperatures can rise. They have large populations and they currently have a really high fossil fuel usage rate. So those are two countries that we're going to have to have a really important seat at the table for. The reports basically state that the odds of nations meeting their 2015 Paris goals are not very good, and we need those goals to hit to keep global warming under two degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. To that, I would say it's a good thing that by the time this episode is released, we are only two days away from this year's climate talks, which will hopefully produce stronger goals that are legally binding. Yeah, seriously. Uh, And we need to keep these I mean, like we've talked about on this show, we need to keep these goals, uh, you know, realistic and relevant for each country. So hopefully we get some, some good stuff over the, over the next couple of days here. Yeah. And another thing that's important is that we talked about how China and India have really high fossil fuel usage right now, but right now is the key word there. If you look at historical emissions, the U S is clearly number one and a lot of the industrialized world is not too far behind. So, I mean, for us to sit there and say, you need to do more, like we were there, we were doing the same things that they're doing now. So, I mean, that's why I'm saying we need to focus on equity and making sure that the countries that have already reaped these benefits maybe have to do a little bit more than the countries that are still developing and need a little bit of help. Yeah, exactly. We have to lead by example. It's, it's, it's important. All right, so let's get into the next one. So Frank Jordans of the Associated Press writes, study, fossil fuel plans would far overshoot climate goals. By 2030, global coal, oil, and gas production needs to be cut in half in order to keep global warming from reaching a dangerous level, according to the UN-backed study that was published last Wednesday. The issue is that even with all of these ambitious climate plans, 
we're seeing from governments right now around the world, fossil fuel extractions are still estimated to double before 2030 when compared to the goals that were set in 2015's Paris Agreement. Climate experts warn that we need to stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere by 2050. And the report also detailed that the G20, or the 20 major industrialized and emerging economies of the world, have invested more into new fossil fuel projects than into clean energy since the start of 2020. So that's the kind of performative stuff that's really just setting us back. Announcing these big sweeping plans while investing in the same exact type of energy that we're trying to phase out. That disparity between climate goals and fossil fuel production is known as the production gap, and that's expected to widen until 2040 or beyond. Now, I personally hate this strategy for a multitude of reasons, but number one is that if we start investing more into clean energy and upgrading our infrastructure, it will be expensive. There's no way around that. But it will be so much cheaper than if we make things worse for another 10 or 20 years, and then we have to try to fix it all in whatever is left before 2050. And I guess the alternative would be we just don't do anything and then that's going to be way more expensive when we have to deal with all of the impacts of climate change. So for me, I'm advocating for sweeping climate goals that are backed by not investing in fossil fuel projects because at some point, money can't be the most important thing in all of our investments. And I'm not alone in saying that I think we've reached that point a while ago for climate investment. Yeah, and not to mention like, like you said, like it's, it's not the most money is not the most important thing. Like these communities that are going to be impacted first, that's like what we're going to lose. Like that is what's at stake here. So when people stop thinking about it in terms of money and start thinking about it in terms of just like lives, like just straight people who are going to pass away because of there's not enough action that I hope will be enough to be like, holy crap, like we need to change something. Yeah. And with the last story, we talked about climate refugees. And that's another thing. Like if those people lose their homeland, they're going to need a place to live. So all of a sudden we then have to start building more houses and growing more food locally and all of these different things that are going to cost a lot of money. So it's either, you know, we have the opportunity to help a lot of people by doing this or we put off weight down the road until it's not an opportunity anymore. It's we need to help people because they are in grave, grave danger. Yeah, absolutely. And the supply chain is under enough pressure as it is. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So next up, Lauren Gambino of The Guardian reports, no more time to waste. Chair of House Climate Panel warns ahead of COP26. This article is from last Thursday, and we felt that Gambino's message was important to share but some details of the article have changed. So we'll talk about those after. Yeah, if you're going to read this, uh, there's some things that were speculated about what could come in the coming week, which is now, if you're listening to the show, the week that just passed. Um, overall, the message was important to share, so we wanted to include this in the episode, but we're going to clear up some of the things that have developed since. So the Build Back Better plan includes cutting emissions by 50 to 52% below 2005 levels by 2030. That plan that was in front of Congress this week was set to be the most important and far-reaching clean energy and climate bill ever passed by U.S. Congress, according to Florida Congresswoman Kathy Castor. Now, Castor is also the chair of the Select Committee on Climate Change, so she knows what she's talking about when it comes to this sort of thing. 
The vote in Congress came down to Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And Manchin made it clear he does not support a clean electricity program, which he said is because the proposal is too expensive. We could go into detail about some of the programs that we have that are more expensive. We could talk about the cost of climate inaction if we do nothing. Instead, let's talk about how Joe Manchin is a coal baron who makes roughly $500,000 per year in dividends from millions of dollars of coal company stock that he owns. He started a company called Enter Systems Incorporated in 1988 that was sent to a blind trust once he became a senator because it would be a conflict of interest to manage a business while also making policies that impact that business. That blind trust is being run by his son. So I still think that's a massive conflict of interest. <laughs> Wowie. I, hey, I am not into calling people out on the show. Just kidding. I do it every sing- <laughs> single week. Um, but wowie, Joe Manchin. How about that? I didn't even know that. That's insane. We should also add that West Virginia is one of the U.S. states with the highest flood risks uh, because of climate change. Yeah, so he should probably prioritize climate change more despite the upfront cost that he's worried about because his state, full of people he was elected to represent, will be feeling the impacts long after he's gone if he doesn't get on board with this idea. I should also add he's a 74-year-old man, so I mean, he has the opportunity to impact things that will definitely occur after his lifetime. But anyway, he would have been the 50th vote needed to pass a bill in the Senate, and he was not willing to negotiate on this clean electricity program. So White House officials tried to piece together parts of the plan that Manchin would support and to come up with an alternative before COP26. That way we had something to present to the rest of the world, which they did. And we'll get into that update from yesterday at the time of this episode's release uh, at the end of this segment. So Kathy Castor is quoted as saying, every step we take now to clean up our electricity sector will make a world of difference in the decades to come. And we cannot afford to keep kicking the can down the road. So one more thing that I found frustrating, even if this bill were to pass as initially proposed, the Build Back Better Act would not get us to net zero by 2050 on its own. So I'm hoping that the upcoming G20 meeting and the COP26 conference provide international plans and agreements that can help address this issue as a whole. Yeah, definitely. And another update uh, on Thursday, the White House released the framework for its proposal to combat climate change as part of the Build Back Better plan. Yeah, so I don't know in the time of recording versus tomorrow when he's supposed to leave for this conference, what's going to happen. Um, they very well could pass this or it could not. So keep your eyes out there, anyone who's listening. Um, unfortunately, the bill that's now proposed was really impacted by fossil fuel lobbyists, but it includes clean energy tax credits, resilience investments, which is more of the adaptation end of addressing climate change. Um, investments and incentives for clean energy technology, manufacturing and supply chains, and finally, clean energy procurement incentives. So it's a decent plan. And the specifics of each of those bullet points are available online if you're curious about the numbers. But to be honest, I'm not thrilled compared to what was originally proposed. But look, like we said, there are other ways to address climate change than just this one bill on its own. So we'll see. Yeah, we don't need Joe Manchin to... I mean, listen, we do need Joe Manchin to vote on we this We kind of do, yeah. <laughs> we do, but we'll do it without him, you know? Life goes on. But anyway, let's get into the next one here. 
Aylin Woodward writes, Female African elephants evolved toward being tuskless over just a few decades as poachers sought ivory from Business Insider. So my great friend John Marsh sent this one in, so thank you for the article recommendation. Um, elephants are my favorite animal. I think we've talked about that pretty much anytime we bring up animals, so shout out elephants. Uh, this one hit on a very personal level for me because of that. So the story is about Shane Campbell Statton, who is an evolutionary biologist at Princeton, and he stumbled across a YouTube video about female elephants in Mozambique's Gorongosa National Park not having tusks. Usually 2% of female elephants are tuskless, so he started looking into it, and he actually got invited to study elephants in the park. And he found that between 1977 and 2004, elephants without tusks rose from 18.5% to 33% of the population. This stems from a civil war in Mozambique that began in 1977, where Ivory financed the war efforts of both sides for 15 years. And by 1992, when the war had ended, the elephant population in the park declined by over 90%. And it got to the point where about half of the female elephants in the park were tuskless. So basically, poachers wouldn't kill the elephants that lacked tusks because there was nothing to gain for them there. The gene that didn't produce tusks became more common in reproduction because these elephants were surviving longer and had more opportunities to breed. Between 1972 and 2000, for every tusked female elephant that survived, five were tuskless. Poaching had caused a rapid evolution of the species. So researchers found that the gene was passed from mothers to their offspring. And here's where it gets even more interesting. The gene is known as AMELX, which for my own ignorance, I'm going to pronounce AMELX. Uh, and this gene is found in humans as well. So if a human female at birth has the gene, they're usually going to have brittle teeth and lower tooth growth. But if a male at birth inherits the Amelx gene, they're most likely going to die. And researchers think the same thing could happen with elephants, which is why we only see tuskless female elephants. Tusks are really important to elephants, so they're used to dig for minerals, uncover water sources below the ground, stripping tree bark, and more. And then once that tree bark is stripped, elephants can push over trees and create new places for plants to grow. So elephants are also crucial for the ecosystems that they live in. Mozambique's civil war has been over for a while now, but Campbell Statton thinks it will take between five to seven generations for the elephant population to return to normal, with only 2% of elephants being tuskless. He also added that five to seven generations is obviously way longer than the one generation that it took to, quote, mess it all up. Wildlife conservation is so fascinating, man. <laughs> Seriously. And it, it's so funny because it's something I never really thought about. Like, I'm thinking about the quote from um, from Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption when he's like, how often is it that you notice a man's shoes? <laughs> And I think it's the same thing for elephants. Like, I don't really notice if they have tusks or don't. I just see that they're elephants. I'm like, that's so yeah. sweet. And that's it. So my usual thing is I notice their ears because I know African elephants have those big, like wide, long ears and Asian elephants have smaller ones. So that's always the first thing that like my eyes shoot towards because I want to see what kind of elephant we're looking at. But yeah, man, I, I don't, I, I can't tell you if like an elephant has big tusks or small tusk. I'm sure if I really sat down and looked, I'd notice like, oh, okay, this one doesn't have any at all, but yeah, I'm not a tusk guy. I'm an ear guy. <laughs> <laughs> More focused on the ears. <laughs> let's just say that. All right. And let's get into our final one here. And it's from Judith Newman of National Geographic. 
And she wrote, here's how parks and public lands are becoming more autism friendly. Yeah, so Newman talks about some of the things that can frustrate national park guests with autism to start off her article. And she says that there's vast spaces or spaces that are too small. There's bugs they're not familiar with, animals they aren't familiar with, different weather than what they're used to, which can be tough for children with sensory issues, um, you know, that might not like to wear shoes or a jacket. And for screen-dependent children, there's also no stable Wi-Fi connection or no Wi-Fi at all. So in other words, there's a lot of ways for a child with autism to find themselves out of their comfort zone. And Newman discusses how her own son, like many other children with autism, does not like surprises. So having a son that this related to prompted her to do a lot of research on it. And she said that to combat this, more parks and recreation centers are working to become certified autism centers through the International Board of Credentialing and Continuing Education Standards, which is the IBCCES. Um, And this program has been endorsed by the Autism Society of America as well. The National Park Service has formed the Accessibility Task Force in 2012 to try to make some areas more accessible to those with physical disabilities. And they've actually since expanded that scope to those with developmental disabilities. So the article points out that one of the lesser known gems of the national parks is the Access Pass for Autism which is only $10 and provides access to almost every national park in the United States. So the parks are more affordable for people within this community, but are the parks themselves more autism friendly? Newman discusses that the unpredictability of a trip to a park, the new smells, new sights, unfamiliar noises, too much light, whether you can't plan for, etc. It, it all adds up. Um, And she says that despite research showing that times in nature can be soothing for people with autism, a recent study showed that 87% of families with a child with autism do not go on vacation at all. So the hope is that certifying parks and rec centers as autism friendly could change this drastically. And it's no small feat to get that certification. It requires 80% of all personnel to receive specialized training with people on the autism spectrum. So there are also requirements for the sensory environment, like there needs to be quiet areas that people can retreat to if they're triggered by loud sounds or another unexpected situation. The article actually goes on to talk about the Autism Nature Trail in Castile, New York, and I think everyone should check this out. It's really cool. Like, There's no words on our show that are going to be able to do this trail justice, but we will try. (laughs) Um, The trail is basically a mile loop that's very meticulously maintained and planned with trees and barberries surrounding that kind of serve as a barrier if people try to run off. Um, It's also wheelchair accessible and there's a quiet reflective place, a place for running and jumping, a place for smelling, a place for touching. So there's something for everyone at the Autism Nature Trail. And with that, there's precedent for how parks can become more autism friendly. There's also scientific support that nature can be a soothing place for people within this community. And there's a big push for inclusivity in our society today. Yeah, I I love this. I think this is an awesome, awesome idea. Um, Judith Newman, big ups to you. I think that's uh, great to bring to light. Something I'm sure not a lot of people have thought about before. Uh, And I was shocked about the 87% of families uh, that do not go on vacation if they have a child with autism. That is completely shocking to me, to be honest. And I mean, I get it. It's probably super hard to 
find somewhere that is, you know, not completely overcrowded with people and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was totally with you when I read 87%. I was like, that, like anything that's that high just shocks me. So for 87% of families to not be able to go on vacation, it's tough. Like it's hard to plan a trip like that. So I, having all those extra factors, I'm sure it's tough, but yeah, you know, he, here on the show, Nick and I both believe that the outdoors should be and can be for everyone. The outdoors as a concept is extremely vast. And with that, there should be something in nature for everyone. Um, there's enough variety in the parks, the woods, hiking trails, etc., that people might not like everything, but everyone should like something. And your physical and or mental condition should not be a barrier to enjoy this. So I'm excited to see the National Park Service working with groups to make the environment more inclusive. Matt, I think you absolutely nailed it. I totally agree with your sentiment. I don't care who you are. You have to like something about this earth. Like there's got to be something for you, you know? Yeah. And it's cool that they're going to hopefully find a way to let everyone enjoy that thing that they like. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right. So I think right now would be a pretty good time to take a break, Matt. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. Get ready for some spooky (laughs) music, folks. And after the break, we'll be talking about deforestation. Nick, so I was doing a little bit of research about economics when we were talking about our upcoming feature story and how it's the economics of deforestation. And I learned a little bit about the principle of the invisible hand, which is basically that individuals are going to act in their own self-interest. Um, and that can sometimes have unintended social benefits that they weren't really intending. Are, are you familiar with the invisible hand? No, but it sounds like you're describing hedonism a little bit. Maybe. And I think, you know what? Screw it. Let's not talk about the invisible hand and let's talk about the hand kerchief. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high performance. <laughs> Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high performance daily use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Go get them, guys. Valaalta.co. There's no reason to put an M. Don't do it. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And today we will be talking about deforestation and how banks profit from destroying the rainforests and the human rights issues related to deforestation. The International Institute for Applied System Analysis says the economic growth in poor countries increases along with their deforestation rates, but that effect disappears in wealthier economies. So deforestation basically helps get economies going, and then once they're developed, deforestation experiences little to no increase. 
Yeah, and developing countries use more wood for buildings, and developed countries have their buildings already, so they don't need them. Exactly. And deforestation has a weird impact on the economy, even while helping it increase early on. So the tourism sector in many of the rainforest countries is their main source of income. So they're making money by using the wood as a resource, but also hurting their economy by impacting the tourism sector. Deforestation also has an extreme cost to the global economy, costing approximately $4.5 trillion annually through the loss of biodiversity by eliminating at least part of the habitat for millions of species. It also increases CO2 emissions for the country doing the deforesting, which then has a high cost to them when you factor in carbon pricing. Along with increased greenhouse gas emissions, deforestation has an impact on desertification, soil erosion, fewer crops, flooding, and problems for indigenous peoples. Human activities that lead to deforestation include agricultural expansion, cattle breeding, timber extraction, mining, oil extraction, dam construction, and infrastructure development. In other words, a lot of the processes that we rely on have relied on deforestation in the past. Yeah, it's like a starting point, basically. Um, and Global Witness, an international NGO established in 1993 that works to break the links between natural resource exploitation, conflict, poverty, corruption, and human rights abuses worldwide, published a report last week about deforestation and how it relates to the global banking industry. Yeah, so they're kind of focused on all those things that we do and should care about. Um, so it's a pretty credible organization. Um, but this report was definitely long, um, but very interesting. And we're going to link it in the show notes if you want to check it out. And I think personally that the introduction and conclusion of the reports like this one are always cool to check out. And if you're curious about how they came to these conclusions, the methodology section is also important to check out. So from the introduction, banks and asset managers from the EU, UK, United States, and China have made deals worth $157 billion with firms accused of destroying the rainforests in Brazil, Southeast Asia, and Africa since the Parrot Climate Agreement was signed. These institutions have also earned $1.74 billion in interest, dividends, and fees from financing groups that carry the highest deforestation risks, which are soy, beef, palm oil, and pulp and paper. Financial giants who have repeatedly profited from these deals include HSBC, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, BNB Paribas, Rabobank, and Bank of China. JP Morgan has made deals worth an estimated $9.38 billion with firms accused of deforestation, making it the biggest lender in the deforestation industry. Yeah, and it's insane that JP Morgan could be literally like one of the biggest banks in the world and still somehow like no one really knows that they are the leaders in deforestation. Yeah, how could something so big making so much money be so evil? <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> It's like, the, the more we learn, the less I'm surprised. It's, it's all this comes down to. Yeah, seriously. It's insane. And it's also not limited to just the big banks that we had mentioned. Uh, the report also found that more than 300 banks and investors provided $44 billion in 2019 to back six of the world's worst deforesters over six years. Yeah, Global Witness reports that the lack of accountability means that banks can basically keep making these deals and there's NGOs that are looking into ways to legally hold deforestation financiers accountable, but it's going to take government regulation to end the ability to profit from deforestation. 
Yeah, and they also mention a few countries that are working on those kinds of regulations. Yeah, the UK has members of parliament across their political spectrum uh, calling for a new deforestation due diligence law. China sees revising their laws governing banks as a way to create stronger forest safeguards. And the United States has a proposed bill called the Targeting Environmental and Climate Recklessness Act that would restrict access to the U.S. financial system for environmental culprits, as the report calls them. Yeah, and they say this is similar to the way that the law applies to firms accused of cybercrime, human rights abuses and corruption, and also wildlife trafficking. Yeah, so there's a precedent for this, which also always increases the chance of it becoming a reality. Something that I found really interesting is that two-thirds of tropical forest that is cleared for pasture or cropland is converted illegally, which a May 2021 study from Forest Trends attributes to corruption or poor enforcement of local laws. Or just knowing a guy down the street. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and the same study said that agribusiness is a high-risk sector for the killing of land and environmental defenders, abuses of indigenous rights, and a risk factor for future pandemics as biodiversity decreases. It's really interesting when you think about it. Like it's, it's not like cutting down trees is just bad because of the increased carbon in the atmosphere and decrease in trees and vegetation in the area. It's a practice that's way more harmful than most of us would ever imagine without reports like this one coming to light. Global Witness started collecting information on over 300 companies involved in beef, soy, palm oil, pulp and paper, rubber, and timber supply chains. And of that 300, they analyzed 20 of the most harmful and well-established firms based on the quality and availability of evidence about deforestation claims against them. Based on all of that information, they developed a methodology for estimating how much income banks made from deforestation deals, which can be found in greater detail towards the end of this report. If you're a statistics fan, definitely check it out. If you're not a numbers person like I am, Some of this might go over your head, just like it did. (laughs) Yeah, and they found that banks made an estimated 1.74 billion from deals with some of the world's most harmful deforesters five years after the Paris Agreement was adopted in December 2015. They also estimate that the total value of the deals was roughly 157 billion dollars. Yeah, there's another interesting chart that breaks down the deforestation lending patterns by region. Um, It's just disappointing to see some of the big names up there. So the report goes into detail about HSBC, BNP Paribas, Deutsche Bank, Rabobank, JP Morgan, Bank of China, because those companies were responsible for 5,000 of the 71,000 deals analyzed. They're also household names to people living across the region studied, as the authors mentioned. Yeah, and definitely check out Uh, If you're curious about any of the specific banks that we mentioned here, the authors conclude with a what we found section with a really important thought. This shows the failure of voluntary policies and the urgent need for action by governments to curb the financing of farce destruction before it's too late. Yeah, I thought that was a really powerful quote that they ended that with. But yeah, um, the overall conclusions of the article are that lessening rainforest loss is critical for mitigating climate change. 8% of global CO2 emissions comes from tropical deforestation, which also accounts for global temperatures rising and a loss of biodiversity. The finance sector has encouraged or at the very least enabled or turned a blind eye towards forest destruction. And banks play a big role in this. Because of how lucrative the practice is for them, they kind of just are okay with it. 
We didn't get into some of the greenwashing campaigns by these banks, but the authors definitely bring up some company values that aren't exactly reflected by the company's policies. Another thing is that all of us pay the price for deforestation, but communities who depend on the forests face the worst problems associated with it. So we need legislative action because some deforesters have secured loans from banks into 2050 and several have secured loans past 2025 and past 2030. So this is something that's going to take a solution or else this already long-term problem is just going to keep getting more and more out of hand. Yeah. And among other things, the authors recommend that financial institutions need to fix part of the deforestation and ecosystem impacts that they helped cause and secretive financing practices that deny local communities the right to know which companies are profiting from deforestation in their area. And they also need to publish lists of companies to avoid uh, due to deforestation and human rights issues. They also say that governments need to require businesses to respect the consent of affected communities, adopt legislation that addresses deforestation and associated environmental harms, address the issues that cause deforestation like palm oil, soy, and cattle farming. Yeah, it's a long list, but I mean, I don't think anything there is unreasonable. They're basically saying banks need to use some of that money that they made along the way, uh, having a ton of environmental impacts to fix the problem. And governments need to say, hey, respect the people that live there. Hey, maybe address the issues that are causing deforestation. Like, don't encourage really intensive uh, farming practices through cattle farming, soy, palm oil, like just be responsible to the land and the people of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I think everything has a way of showing up on your own doorstep eventually. And maybe some of these guys or guys and gals are going to be too old at that point to, to have it come to their doorstep. But that's, that's my mentality. And, um, it's just insane to me that how many, household names you've listed off and how much these banks have just been fueling deforestation and basically abolishment of of these ecosystems. Yeah, and I'm curious. So I personally have, have PNC Bank. I know nothing about their environmental practices, but I can tell you what, when we're done recording, that's the first thing I'm going to go look up. And I don't know, I, th I think it'd be great. Like We have so much power as consumers that we don't even realize like if everyone was to say, hey, JP Morgan, we recognize that you are fueling a deforestation practice. We're going to go switch our banks to, and I don't want to throw a name out there because I don't know which ones are doing the right things out there, but we can definitely figure that out by doing some research. Like I'm, I'm sure there's people out there that have already delved into this way more than we have. So yeah, let's look them up. Let's see if we got to switch our banks. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Matt. And it's just like, there have been a lot of like people canceling over the past couple of years. Like we've, we've canceled a lot of people, a lot of things. Why have we not looked to our banks? Why have we not canceled some of the big banks? I get it. They're massive, yeah. but like, Hey, let's distribute. Yeah. And I think, you know, the big, um, the big critique when people bring up like, Oh, everyone's getting canceled. Like, no, they're just being held accountable. And with this, yeah, we're just going to hold the banks accountable. Like they've made money off things that, Look, if you're an investor and you personally are going to say, I want to put my money into these causes that I care about. Yeah. 
your banks are no different. Like when you're storing money in the bank and paying interest on loans, the bank is going to take that money and invest it in a way that they will make more money. Yeah. So if the way that they're doing that is deforestation, then like I personally don't want to help fund that. Yeah. It's the same thing as like funding a politician's campaign. You're doing the same thing. Yeah. No, I'm with you, with you hundred percent. And you know, this also just goes to the greater topic of consumerism where every purchase that we make is going to make somebody else money. Right. So what they do with their money is, is up to them. Yeah. But if you can look up, you know, this business supports this cause and donates this much money to this cause, it's easier to see, you know, where your money is going to and whether it's your bank, where you're buying your shirts, where you're buying your groceries, like that's something that we could all probably be a little bit more diligent about. And look, I think this was very eye opening for me and I hope for a lot of our listeners too. Yeah, I agree. And just to, just to bring to light one of one company that I think is fantastic for exactly what you just said, Newman's own, they make salsa, they make sauce, they make everything under the sun, they make lemonade and a hundred percent of all, uh, profits go directly to charity. Yeah. So check it out. RIP our boy, Paul Newman as well. <laughs> yes, of course. May he rest in paradise. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Closing thoughts. Banks had their fun. They made a lot of money. If investing in companies that are found to be big time deforesters was to become illegal tomorrow, I don't think anyone is worried about the banks losing their money over this. So they definitely, definitely have enough money to be able to invest that into other things that are still lucrative, but also environmentally friendly or at the very least environmentally neutral. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's past time for the planet to take priority. And this is something that look, I think we have a lot more power than we realize to get this moving. hundred percent, Matt. Totally agree. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of TPT next week. Nick and I will be talking about the National Geographic documentary, Smoky Mountain Park Rangers. Woo! Definitely go check it out before Friday so you can follow along with us next week. It's only like 42 minutes long, so no excuses unless you don't have Disney+. Plus. But honestly, just take someone's account that you know and log in. Yeah, the Great Smoky Mountains is actually the most visited national park in the United States. So I think this should be a cool one to see some of the wildlife, the rangers, and just kind of the... Um, the ins and outs of the park. But like Nick said, if you don't have Disney Plus, grow up and ask for your friend's password like an adult. <laughs> <laughs> Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod, or you can email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate if you could share the show with a friend. As we say every week, we love getting new listeners and we love engaging with people on social media. And when you all do that with our posts, it helps get some new eyes on the show. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, you can send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too, just like John Marr did this week. If you have a guest you want us to have on, let us know and we will do our best to make it happen. We have some really fun guests lined up in the next few months and we're hoping to keep that train rolling into 2022. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We would also love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Budlin Cape, and that is B-U-D 
L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone. Happy Halloween. Happy COP26 weekend. <laughs> and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Ooh.